Welcome everyone to Season 1, Episode 2 of the On Path Podcast. Every episode this season features a conversation with a guest about their life and career to date, the path they're on. For this episode, I am really happy to be speaking to Dan Acristini, a lead DevOps engineer at the global pharma company Roche. He's previously worked in DevOps for Swisscom, in cybersecurity for Ernst & Young, and as the head of R&D for a blockchain startup. What fascinates me about Dan's journey is how he's pivoted from studies in business and finance to a thriving career in DevOps. He shares his mindset and some great stories in this conversation. I think you'll enjoy. Thanks for listening. Hey, Dan. Thank you for joining. I'm really excited to be chatting. Hi, Vijay. Happy to be here. So I want to start off by asking you about a, a tech talk you gave at Google's Zurich last year about Kubernetes. You ran a demo where you used code to make some drones take off and land, and that was really cool. And I'll include a link to it in the show notes. My question for you is, have you always been a, a tinkerer since childhood, or is that a more recent thing? I think I've been a tinkerer since a very young age. We used to have, uh, back when I was growing up, I think I was like four or five at the time, there'd be this uh, shed in the back of a house, which had all of my dad's tools. And I would just go there and stay there for hours and start building stuff, even though I could barely actually use a screwdriver. So I think I had this curiosity element since a very young age, but the moment when I learned how actual technology works, oh boy, that really started going south for me. And that's how you end up having drones in your house with like smell of burned batteries. Not a great idea, but it's really fun. Yeah, I saw. So in that video, it looks like did you burn through three different drones? Not not the actual drones. I had separate components of them that got fried. So that was the voltage upscaler, I think it's called. It would increase the voltage from a regular battery to something that a Raspberry Pi could operate from. And without any documentation or instructions, I had to trial and error, find out which are the right leads. And without a multimeter, that is not a great idea. So yeah, but in the end, they, they lasted long enough for the demo, so I'm very happy. But you can still use the drones. So my nephews still use the drones when they want to. The problem is they're no longer um, part of Skynet, basically. They're no longer absolutely automated. Yeah, and, and that was a great call doing the demo on video because it looked like potentially things could go wrong. I've tried. This is not my first um, drone demo. And unfortunately, even the first one also had to be done on video and it took us multiple takes to get it right. Because when you're dealing with relatively uh, cheap drones, the accuracy is not that high. So what happens is that if you have an idea of some sort of a route that you want them to follow, uh, in the result, they might actually slightly diverge plus minus a meter or tens of centimeters, and it could make the whole thing go wrong. And that's why usually for drone demos, videos are great, but I'm not doing a drone demo anytime soon. These things take forever. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Let's back up a little bit now and start by talking about what you work on right now. So for maybe the benefit of some listeners, but definitely for my benefit, if you could explain what is DevOps and why is it an important function in companies today? Uh, DevOps is 
really not that recent of a trend. It's, I think it's already 10 years old, at least since it started. DevOps Days Belgium happened around 11 years ago, I think. And it's really trying to change the mindset of a lot of operations and organizations. So making sure that in order to request services such as virtual machines, or let's say you want to deploy an application to some sort of a platform and you don't have to create a ticket. You try to automate this process as much as possible. You try to get very tight feedback loops to your customers, but also to your platforms team. And you really try to get some sort of uh, metric uh, approach. So you want to know what's happening. When is it happening? You don't want to basically throw some sort of an application over the fence to the operators and they'll just deploy it for you because this creates a lot of issues between these teams. So DevOps really tries to streamline processes and organizations specifically regarding, I would say, infrastructure automation and also application deployment. DevOps in itself is like there is one nice uh, model explaining DevOps. It's called CAMS. It's culture, automation, measurement, and sharing. So it's a culture where your it's operations do DevOps. It's not that you separate it to I don't know a separate team in an organization. That's why it's a bit tricky when you hear the name DevOps engineer. It's not the most uh, straightforward position title because technically you're not in the middle of these two teams. You're actually in ops, but you are doing things slightly differently than they used to be done with like automation, with metrics, with like making sure that you're providing, let's say your customers with a nice approach with something that they will be happy with. You're really trying to be service focused. Okay, got it. Especially for those who work in tech companies, you, you might have colleagues who are in DevOps. So you might have heard of it, but not know much about it. What do you feel are some common misconceptions about DevOps? When you, when you hear some, that somebody is like a DevOps engineer, you think that their main job is basically automate all the things, which is kind of right, but automation is not the core purpose of DevOps. So it's part of it. Yeah, of course, but it's if you try to just make processes that used to be broken faster, you're going to break things faster. And when you try to explain to people and to show and basically create this community of practice, I would say, regarding better ways of deploying, better ways of uh, building applications, it's really important to drive the culture and not the automation part. Automation is a tool to get the job done. So I'd like to ask you a bit about your origin story. You grew up in Moldova. Now you live in Switzerland. Do you have a special thing for landlocked countries? <laughs> uh, kinda, I guess. Well, yeah, I grew up in Moldova. That's where I spent basically most of my time up until high school, including high school, actually. And then I moved to Italy for about three years. Yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. so. The obvious solution was to go and study business. I yeah. ended up studying uh, international economics, management, and finance. I actually learned about economics for the first time in my life. I had no clue what that was. So I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting. Maybe a bit due to my Eastern European upbringing, but it's basically you start with studies. So you do your high school, you do your bachelor's, then you do your master's, and then you get a job. So obviously after my bachelor's, I wanted to do a master's degree. 
again, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. So I went to study finance. I don't really know why, but that's how I ended up in Switzerland for the first time. Because my sister was living at the time in Lausanne. So kind of made sense. I could stay with her for a year while doing my master's. It was really nice. And actually, that's when I started volunteering at Impact Hub. And then I found out about Goodwall, where we met. So that was super fun. And back then, when I wasn't sure whether I was competitive enough on the job market, because I knew I was kind of a finance student, but not from, let's say, London School of Economics or whatsoever. And as an immigrant in Switzerland, I kind of was slightly disadvantaged. So I wanted to make sure that I could be better at this. And I kind of took a slight turn in my studies to go for business information management, which is alignment between IT and business, but it's still mostly business studies. What happened was I had this course. It was called Programming for Managers. It was Java. I haven't coded like properly in many years. I mean, I was always curious about programming. I built my own PCs. I mean, I could script my way through. But this was the first time where I literally went from zero to hero. Like I, I think first two weeks, I still attended classes. And then my professor didn't see me for the next two months because I completely went overboard. I rebuilt an entire marketplace with a good friend of mine. And the professor was just like, how did you do this with the studies that I gave you? I'm like, no, no, Stack Exchange, Google, everything we went over. And I realized I kind of had a knack for it. And I was very happy. Honestly, it was the first time in my life when I got the chance to code like during my studies. And it was just awesome. Yeah. So that you kind of felt your calling right there. I was really happy. I knew like uh, I got aligned with this. Like I could understand how this works. And even if I didn't, I could always do trial and error and then it would come up because every time you try something else, it's a different error message. So I'm, I'm curious to dig into your master's experience a bit more. So you, you took this master's business and information systems. And as you described, you had this programming for managers class and right away, that's where things took off. What did you tell your classmates that you were doing? Oh, well, I, I just told them like we had this group project and everybody was contributing to it. And in the beginning, we were all excited about it. And then at one point I'm like, look, I kind of want to build this really crazy thing. If a professor asks, I'll make sure that we all know how to explain it, but just really give me a couple of weeks. <laughs> So I basically went to like AFK, nobody knew what I was doing and I kept building this. And we ended up having a full marketplace where you could basically buy and sell goods written in Java with no framework that was deployed on a Raspberry Pi in my home and you could access it online. The professor was like, I've never seen a student do something like this. I'm like, well, how are you gonna build an application nowadays without having some any sort of front end? You cannot just offer people a Java executable. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So it was really fun because the whole course was focused on uh, a bit of marketing, a bit of processes, a bit of agile, a bit of like really a lot of information that you would have to work with at a current day's organizations. But it's not really focused on programming because that was an elective. It wasn't even mandatory to take the programming for managers course. Yeah. So 
it was definitely, it sounds like total overkill for that course. What were they expecting? Well, the original output was supposed to be in a good case scenario, basically a command line tool that you could do some calculations or some spreadsheet management using it. Basically you would feed it some sort of a spreadsheet and then it would read it and then it would like do some calculations or split a bill or something like that. Yeah. From that project, what percentage of the code that you wrote for it, did you have to learn during those two or three weeks and how much did you already have from before? Uh, I didn't know anything. I went from zero. Like I literally, I've never coded in Java in my life. I knew that it existed, but I've never had to work with Java because it's not a language that I usually use. And back then, my only knowledge was uh, Turbo Pascal, which is really old. And I mean, it's great because it teaches you how procedure, procedural programming works. So you have an idea of a function, but not really translatable knowledge. I'd like to maybe talk a little bit more about your childhood. If you could just paint a picture of how was your schooling? Did you take any technical courses or work on any projects then? Uh, so in Moldova at the time, I was at a, a lyceum and we didn't really have coding classes till I think ninth grade or eighth grade, something like that. And up until then, I had a computer. I think I got my first computer around, no, my sister got her first computer when I was at the age of like eight or nine. So I started tinkering with it. I started understanding how the internet worked. It was really cool. Like uh, basically just like dial up, trying to like tell mom and dad, like, can you please not stay on the phone? I really want to search something online or something like that. And maybe got so fed up that we actually got two phone lines. We were one of the first houses to have two phone lines. That was amazing. But yet again, internet speeds of one kilobyte a second. Ooh, that was harsh. But I don't know, I always found it really cool and really awesome, but I didn't spend too much time like on my computer. I think the first time I spent, uh, let's say, north of four to five hours in front of a computer was already in university. Mm. Back before that, it was only during class. It was a bit at home, like playing a couple of video games, but not too much because I was doing a lot of extracurricular activities at the time. I was doing piano, tennis, anything like my parents thought that would be great for like developing myself in like multilaterally. So yeah. uh, focusing 100% on computers was not part of a plan. So if I told you uh, at the beginning of your master's in Rotterdam that in 2020, you would be, you know, quite deep into DevOps, would that have surprised you or would that have seemed possible? There's always a possibility. So I, I don't think I'd be surprised. Basically, I never knew what I was going to do two years from now. So uncertainty is kind of okay for me. I'm very used to not knowing what I'm going to end up doing. The path to get there would be the curious part for me. It's like, I'd really want to know how did I get there. When I look at the last few years of your career, it's, it's quite remarkable from Rotterdam onwards. And, and we met before that, uh, and you left such an impression on me. So I can't say I'm uh, surprised, but I am kind of equal parts confused and amazed that right after a, a business degree, you join EY full-time as a cybersecurity advisor, then become head of R&D at a, a blockchain startup, then move to 
uh, Swisscom to be a Kubernetes engineer, I guess at first glance can seem quite meandering, but fascinating to hear, hear your journey. It took a while. It's not like the most straightforward path that I could have taken, but I'm really happy where I ended up. So right now I'm just happy that I've kind of, it's worked out for me. So I really don't have any like bad feedback. And I'm very happy that also with, I think every single employer that I had up till now, we're still in great terms. Like we're all happy to go and meet up for a beer whatsoever. There were never hard feelings about, because Again, I did kind of change quite often uh, mm. positions and uh, jobs, but that's because I always kept moving forward. And I had this dream that I wanted to be very competitive on the market. I wanted to achieve something where I was better at, not be one of the many people that can work. <laughs> I didn't want to be replaceable, actually. You've been in two fields recently that are quite hot. I mean, apart from DevOps, cybersecurity. Could you tell us a little bit about how you landed that position and uh, what that involved? I was part of a student association in Rotterdam that was called Turing Society. It was focused on teaching basically students how to code, how to do, let's say, a front-end work, also a bit of back-end in Node.js. And at one point I heard there's a hackathon and it was a TY. So I went there. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm not that great at front-end. I'm not that great at like Node.js, but I'll figure it out. So I started working for one of the teams of a hackathon. Then mid hackathon, like 12 hours later at three in the morning, I saw another team that was having certain problems with their application. It wasn't a programming language that I haven't used before. It was like in R, uh, which is a statistical language. And I was like, okay guys, let's try to figure this out. So I just sat with them and then in the end, we managed to figure out the problem and we built the final product. Everybody was super happy. And I got a recommendation from that team to join UI. And when I heard about the cybersecurity team and the interview I was going to have, I realized it was with a friend of mine, the friend who built the other part of the Java application. So when I told him that I have an interview with his manager, he just couldn't believe it. And I was the first non-Dutch speaker in the team. And it worked out. I mean, I'm happy because I managed to learn Dutch and they were like, we really want you to join the team. Just know that kind of most of the work is going to be in Dutch. And I was absolutely happy with that because it was technical work and it was really cool technical work, really cool clients. And were there others from the hackathon who also joined EY full-time? I, I know that not many people from there ended up in cybersecurity because it was quite a stretch going from programming to security. And honestly, I don't understand that because if you're a good developer, you really know how to do good security. Mm. It's way easier once you know how to build applications to know what to look for. And I don't know, that was a bit confusing for me, but now I'm very happy that I've done that because it really helps doing DevOps and operations because you always have an act for security and you always try to look for things that could go wrong. So a question I like to ask every guest is what keeps them in their particular field? Like what got them into it, which we've, we've discussed, but what, what keeps you in it? I think it's a community, honestly. I've always been amazed by the people I've worked with, by how willing they are to help you, how inclusive they are. It's been one of the best communities I've worked in. And honestly, if I have to... 
compare it with finance, I'd rather work in IT for the rest of my life <laughs> because <laughs> it's just so nice. Uh, everybody's so welcoming. Every time I have issues or I want to help somebody, I am always there. I know that they are not going to like try to create unnecessary blocks for me to deploy a fix to something because I know that in open source, my if I spot a problem with a project and I fix a problem, everybody wants to fix a problem. So is, honestly, I think the community is the most important thing for me in the DevOps and in Kubernetes and in general in IT. Yeah, that, that sounds like a very, very good reason. At, at this moment, where would you say are the most vibrant DevOps communities online? Oh, Twitter. That's you start with Twitter. You you have to follow the people you you like admire on Twitter. Like I think I have about a hundred people that I follow and I try to keep up to date because they always have new developments. It's always interesting to see what's happening. And other than that, obviously, then you go to Slack because you can figure out who's working on what and then you can chat with them. Because for Kubernetes, we have an open Slack uh, where you anybody can join and you can just find anybody and ask for support or say like, oh, you're experiencing this problem or you want to build this. It's pretty nice because you can just reach out to everybody that you see and you follow on Twitter and then you just like, okay, by the way, can we work on this together or something like that? And how does that not turn into total chaos? Oh, it is total chaos. There is no, there's no way around it. It's like my Slack explodes once I turn on my laptop. Like I, I've never seen with like no notifications on Slack. That doesn't happen. Yeah. It's also massive. I think it's one of the biggest Slack groups that there are. A final question about DevOps. For someone who knows nothing or very little about DevOps and they're interested by what you said and they want to get a quick introduction either through, uh, let's say, a video or uh, a podcast or one page or ebook, do you have any one resource that you would recommend as, a, as an entry point? I think I have one podcast. It has been really, really helpful for me, not because it's it brings you from zero to DevOps to uh, like a DevOps engineer, but it tells the story of DevOps. It's pretty long. It's already it's about 80 episodes by now. I kind of had a hiatus for the last two years. It's called DevOps Cafe. Uh, I can share a link afterwards. And it's very interesting because it started around 2010 when the entire movement started. And it's not that you just learn of DevOps, you read the main, I don't know, bullet points, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to implement DevOps. Understanding the history, how it went from operations to configuration management to uh, immutable infrastructure, it really helps put things into perspective. So for me, it was like a great history lesson. I've done that recently. I went through all of the episodes, and I'm very happy to share this because it really helps not only from the technical aspect in order to understand what are the most important tools to use, but it gives you like a sense of culture, which again, DevOps is first and foremost culture. So moving on from DevOps now, it would be interesting to look back a, a bit at your career so far in your life. Can you think of one or maybe two people who have been very influential in the decisions you made? First, I think and foremost is my sister. She was the first child that went from Moldova to like the West and basically made a career for herself. So for me, that was always something I wanted to like follow and pursue. So for sure, she was the person that mostly inspired me. 
Second, I would just vote for the entire community for DevOps because <laughs> there are just too many people to list. One thing I picked up that came through in some of your earlier answers is that you were thinking from, it seems quite early on about your competitiveness in the job market and that helped guide some of your decision-making. Fair, fair point. <laughs> I think it's so innate to me that I don't even realize it by now. But that's also because uh, I'm an immigrant, so for me, it's kind of important to make sure that I'm an asset to the country I'm living in. And I've noticed that that was difficult in the first time, so that's why I chose a field where I'm more competitive. And it just was a very nice coincidence for me to be working in IT, which is something that I love to do. So I want to talk about interests now, and we've talked about probably what your biggest interest is, which is Kubernetes. But uh, are there any things that you've got into recently uh, and are actively learning? I mean, I don't know if this is an interest. I mean, it's, uh, but I can definitely say that 2020 is my year where this has been far less the focus of it. Like I got a car this year and I've been driving nonstop everywhere, all around Switzerland. And this has been probably my most favorite thing to do now. It's like my best pastime activity just to go on a road, listen to music, listen to a podcast and just enjoy like the beautiful views around Switzerland. And what is it about that experience? Is it that you're away from your desk? Is it that you're by yourself or is it that you can listen to something while enjoying the scenery? It's more like uh, conquering something uh, that I was afraid of. So when I grew up, I did my driving license, but I never actually got the chance to practice properly. And now after like, I don't know, let's say a couple of months, I learned that it wasn't the fact that I was scared of it. I just didn't have experience with it. So now I'm just super happy to enjoy something that I never had the option to. Like I was always fearful. And actually that got me from driving a car to driving a boat. So, so tell me about the driving a boat. It was the same idea. It was something I was kind of scared of doing. And now I decided like, okay, let's just do that instead. So it was absolutely stressful and terrifying of the beginning, but now it's just fun to do. And okay, now the weather is not that great, but back in September, it was still amazing to just go on the Lake of Zurich and just go around. It was awesome. Yeah. So on that note, that actually leads perfectly into my next question, which is, what would an ideal day look like for you? I have this thing like for visiting places where I used to live. So such as Amsterdam, Rotterdam or uh, Milan, like I just like going there and spending the day meeting with old friends, catching up and just enjoying the places where I used to live. And it's always amazing. Like, I've done trips like this whenever I wanted to really like be happy and just to Forget about uh, Kubernetes, forget about everything. Nice, nice. Well, I think we can end on that note. Thank you, Dan. I'm very happy. Thank you so much. Honestly, this has been awesome. All right, that's it for episode two. If you're enjoying the show, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be seven more episodes this season featuring product managers, engineers, and marketers. Once again, thank you for listening and see you next time.